0: Ecclesiastes chapter 7, where we left off, beginning in verse 19, it says, Wisdom strengthens the wise, more than ten rulers of the city. But there's not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Also, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. All this I have proved by wisdom. I said, I'll be wise. But it was far from me. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I applied my heart to know, to search and seek out wisdom and the reason of things To know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. And I find more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains or fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. Here's what I found, says the preacher. Adding one thing to the other to find out the reason which my soul still seeks that I cannot find one man among a thousand I have found. But a woman among all these I have not found. Truly, this only I have found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes I have a sneaking suspicion that who we are and where we came from informs us a great deal of what is worth knowing and what is not worth knowing. I grew up in a small, really small desert community. As a matter of fact, when my family moved to the Mojave Desert in 1958, There was less than probably 4,000 people that lived in this Mojave Desert region of Southern California. And so for us, they had one liquor store, one grocery store, maybe a couple of gas stations, but there wasn't very much civilization. You had to drive 20 miles in order to get to a movie theater. So for me, life was spent exploring the desert. And in a desert, you can imagine there are rocks and reptiles and dirt. And so life for me revolved around exploring this desert and going to school. And so we learned about life and we learned about wisdom. And I, like everybody else, was introduced into a series of things that really in our culture and society constituted things worth knowing and things not worth knowing. And in the late 50s and early 60s, when you were in school, you were living under the dread of a nuclear attack coming at any moment. And so we watched films that talked about that in the event that you see a mushroom cloud, get underneath your desk as if that's going to help, right? We learned about life. We learned about wisdom. R.C. Sproul said, One can have knowledge without having wisdom, but one cannot have wisdom without having knowledge. And each and every day you make a choice about what you think is worth knowing and worth not knowing. You make a choice about what you're going to watch with your eyes and what you're going to see with your eyes and what you're going to hear with your ears and what you're going to read. You spend your life making constant choices about what's worth knowing and what's not worth knowing. When I was growing up, there was a popular poem by Edward Hersey Richard, and it was posted in most kindergarten and first grade classes at least In Southern California, where I live, it went like this. A wise old owl, a wise old owl sat on an oak. The more he saw, the less he spoke, the less he spoke, the more he heard. Why aren't we like that wise old bird? My teachers would say this to me almost every single day. I think that they were trying to shame me and manipulate me into talking less and listening more. As you can imagine, it didn't really work. But I think it's still true. In chapter 7, Solomon makes inquiry about the benefits of wisdom. Wisdom makes life better, he says, in verses 1 through 10. Wisdom gives us perspective in verses 11 through 18. Wisdom helps us face life with fortitude or strength in verses 19 through 29. So Solomon has drawn our attention to... The betters in the chapter, a good reputation is better than fine perfume. Verse one, a day, the day of death is better than the day of birth. At the end of verse one, funerals are better than fiestas. Verse two, sorrow is better than laughter. Verses three and four criticism from a wise man is better than praise from a fool in verses five through six. Finishing is better than starting, verse 8. Patience is better than pride, the other part of verse 8. Wisdom is better than wealth, verses 11 and 12. And now, wisdom is better than power. In other words, wisdom is its own kind of power. Wealth has its advantages and wisdom has its advantages Strength, power has its advantages, but so does wisdom. So the chapter contains things that are better. It contains something bitter in verse 26. And of course, it contains what you and I might call the bottom line. What's crooked can't be made straight, verse 13. Enjoy today because no one is guaranteed tomorrow, verse 14. Be balanced, verse 15 through 18. All have sinned, verse 20. Don't eavesdrop, verse 21 and 22. Wisdom without God or wisdom apart from God or wisdom separated from God is impossible. According to the preacher in verses 23 through 25 and 27 through 29. Solomon is going to suggest something to us that I think is true. That wisdom is a form of power. And Solomon will note four areas of life where wisdom provides power. The wisdom to handle life's problems in verses 19 and 20. The wisdom to deal with people that we employ or that we come in contact with in verses 21 and 22. The wisdom to deal with mystery, perplexity that we experience in verses 23, 24, and 25. The wisdom to deal with pitfalls, tragedies, things that seek to hurt us. Wisdom will find a way of escape in verse 26, 27, 28, and 29. And so he begins in verse 19, Wisdom strengthens the wise More than 10 rulers of the city, as a matter of fact, the NIV translates this wisdom makes one one wise man more powerful than 10 rulers in a city. In what way? How is that? The idea is that the wise person fears the Lord. And because the wise person fears the Lord, the wise person doesn't fear anything else or anyone else. It says in Psalm 112, in other words, the fear of the Lord is a seminal or a central fear that will cause every other fear to disappear. If you ask and answer the question, what am I afraid of? Your answer should be, I am afraid of the one person who makes the decisions about every person. The one who gives life and brings death. The one who we will all stand before and give an account of our life. So what he says is wisdom strengthens the wise. Wisdom brings strength and skill. By the way, one of the Hebrew words for wisdom is hokmah. Now, that word appears some 300 times in the Old Testament. It's translated be wise. It's translated wise. It's translated wisdom. But that word, the root meaning of the word is skill. In other words, a Hokma was a special talent. It was a special ability. But it could also refer to skills of all sorts. You might have a special skill of singing or engraving. You might have artistic abilities. You you might have special skills when it comes to math or science or speaking. You might have almost extraordinary talents in some particular subject. The Hebrew people would use the word hokmah to describe the special skill set of an artist. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, when it talked about fabricating the high priest's garments, the word used to describe the fabrication is hokmah, the special skill, if you will, in Exodus 28.3. The engravers who engraved the artistic things in the tabernacle. It was said that they possessed hokmah But what's interesting, ants, badgers, locusts, spiders... When a spider spins its web, when the ants gather together in order to store up over the winter, the same Hebrew word is used to describe what they do. As a matter of fact, people who fashioned idols were said to use it with chokmah and navigators. When they would plot a course in order to go in a specific direction, they used the same word. So... One of the ways that we might think about wisdom broadly, generically, is as a skill set or life skills. People have probably already talked with you about your skill set or this compilation of abilities that you have in order to do whatever it is that you do. The skilled artisan takes materials basically and takes chaos Takes the raw materials and then transforms them into something beautiful and useful. Now, clearly, God uses wisdom. As a matter of fact, the Bible even describes that God took chaos and it became creation. Remember, in the beginning, the earth was without form and void, darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Bible says, that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters, the Bible seems to indicate that God used wisdom or skill to create order, meaning, direction. Now, the reason why this becomes important is because the wise person who walks before the Lord receives the tools, the resources, the skills necessary to face life's challenges, whether the challenge is you have a health issue or whether the challenge is an economic issue or a social issue or a family issue or a friendship issue. In other words, part of the point that the Bible is trying to impart to you is that you have been given a special set of gifts and skills in order to handle life life's challenges, and problems. We face pressure from the world, from our family, from our friends, from Satan. But the Bible teaches that the greatest challenge that we face, the greatest enemy that we have to confront is sin. And the Bible teaches that sin is the dominant fact of human experience. And so it becomes one of the major themes throughout the Bible in the human world, apart from God, apart from God's revelation. We come up with unbiblical solutions to the ongoing problem of sin. People understand that they have challenges, that they have issues that they have to deal with. Some of them are addictions. Some of them are drugs or alcohol or sexual addictions or whatever it is that you're Dealing with, and as you can imagine, people in the world try to still solve their problems. But if the root problem is sin, and you never address the issue of sin, and you never deal with sin, then the chances are you'll never deal with the problem. For some, they Simply assume or presume that sin is an illusion or that sin is a misconception based on a false theory of what constitutes right and wrong. It often manifests itself in comments like, who are you to say what is right and wrong? When a person says to you, hey, who are you to say what's right and wrong? What do you suppose the right answer is? You're exactly right. Who am I to say what is right and wrong? I defer to God and I defer to the Bible. I actually believe that there is a moral governor, that there is a person who becomes the very definition of right and wrong. Is there a God? Is there a creator? Does this creator have the ability to create a standard, a basis of right and wrong, a real God? If there is a real God, then is this real God a moral God, a just God, a God who speaks and reveals his character and his will? And so in the end, sin must include a discussion of whether human beings are subject to a moral God and whether or not this moral God has really revealed himself in time and space and whether or not human beings are morally accountable to this God. You know, another common view of sin is that it's just simply selfishness. Well, it's true that sin is selfishness to a certain extent, but it still falls short of the biblical standard and the biblical revelation. In the Bible, sin is something way worse. Sin is something that falls short of the glory of God, the character of God. In other words, the Bible itself begins to define sin in terms of not what we do to each other, but what it does to God. And so that's one of the reasons why sin is defined as resisting God and rebelling against God and then resisting God and the revelation of God. The Bible teaches that we have personal sin. That we are born sinners, that we are sinners by nature and by choice. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, Paul writes, For as by one man's disobedience, Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Paul says, bad news. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, so did you. What? That doesn't seem fair. You mean I have to live a life of rebellion and disobedience because of Adam and Eve? Life would have been so much better if they hadn't messed up in the garden. Trust me, if they hadn't messed up in the garden, their kids would have, or their kids would have, or their kids' kids would have. Eventually, it would have come down to you. Can you imagine the fate of the whole universe resting on you? Your behavior? But here's the point. That's the bad news. The good news is, If by one person sin could enter into a world, then by one person redemption, salvation, justification, reconciliation, forgiveness, hope could come into a world. That's what's the whole point of the Gospel. And Jesus. In verse 20, the preacher Solomon writes, or there is not... A just man on the earth who does good. Do you think he means himself as well? I think he does. Solomon wasn't the first person to come up with the idea. There's none righteous. No, not one. But Solomon, the wisest man, reiterates what we all know that the Bible says. And there is not a just man on earth by that. It means not a person who never does anything right, but rather a person who is wholly justified before God on the basis of what they think and what they say and what they do. So he writes, there's not a just man on the earth who does good and does not sin. The point that he's making in this very opening salvo is that wisdom, God's wisdom, the revelation of God will impart, provide for you the strength to do what's right instead of what's wrong. Have you ever said to yourself, Lord, I want to do what's right. But I wind up doing what's wrong. The Bible says that God's willing to strengthen you. And give you wisdom on how to act and how to respond. And so we have wisdom to act. And then we have wisdom for work. Look what it says in verse 21. Also, do not take to heart everything people say. Lest you hear your servant cursing you. Part of the point that he's making is don't eavesdrop. Do not take to heart everything People have to say, but there's something inside of us that really wants to know, doesn't it? What are people saying? What do do people, do people think about me? What are people saying about me? We are preoccupied by what people think of us and say about us. Blaise Pascal, the 17th century philosopher and mathematician, said, If all men knew what others say of them, there would not be four friends in the world. The wise person despises gossip, even if they're the subject of the gossip. It was Charles Spurgeon who told his students in his wonderful book, Lectures to My Students, that a minister should have one blind eye and one deaf ear. He says, quote, You cannot stop people's tongues, he said, and therefore the best thing to do is to stop your own ears and never mind what is spoken. There is a world of idle chit-chat abroad, and he who takes note of it will have enough to do. Warren Wiersbe goes on to say that honesty requires us to admit that sometimes we say things that we shouldn't. That not only is it probably a bad idea for you to base your life and base your ministry and base the direction of your life on the basis of what other people say, but also for them to do exactly the same thing on your behalf. This is one of the reasons why this verse, do not take to heart everything people say. There's two kinds of criticism, just and unjust criticism. It doesn't say, do not take anything people say. It says, do not take to heart everything people say. Here's the question. Is it possible that people have it wrong about you? That they didn't get it right. That they have it wrong. And so this, in part, provides for us yet another form of strength. A wise person knows when to listen and when not to listen. You know, if you want to talk to me, I'm more than happy to talk with you. If you want to write me a letter, make sure you sign the letter. Most of the letters I get, however, are unsigned and they are anonymous. Now, that doesn't mean I ignore them or won't even read them, but I'm less likely to take them seriously unless they're signed. So there's wisdom and then there's wisdom for mystery. Look what the writer says. All this. I have. Did I do verse twenty two? For many times also, your own heart has known that even you have cursed others, in in a sense, that, that means, hey, look, it's bad when other people talk about you, but it's also bad when you talk about other people. And so the best idea is to remember this. Great people talk about ideas. Average people talk about things small people talk about other people just tuck that away somewhere verse 23 all this I have proved by wisdom I said I'll be wise but it was far from me here's what Solomon is saying I know that wisdom is important I know that knowing things seems to be important and then how to handle that knowledge seems to be important. He says all this I have proved by wisdom. I said I'll be wise, but it was far from me. In other words, what he's basically saying is that wisdom may give you power, but wisdom doesn't give you the power to know everything about everything. But here's the key concept. Wisdom gives you the power to live with the things you don't understand. That's what he's saying. Well, I don't know everything. Solomon says, I don't need to know everything. What is it that you do need to know? I need to know certain things. You know, I was watching in the news, and I don't know why I watched the news. But there was a medical doctor who was being charged with manslaughter in the death of Michael Jackson. During the course of the inquiry of whether or not he had some culpability or negligence in the death of Michael Jackson, it came to light that, that the doctor turned to the people in the room and he said, Does anybody know CPR? By the way, if a person is dying for whatever reason and they can't breathe, do you think it's a good idea that every doctor knows CPR? That makes sense. So in the grand scheme of things, when you when you divvy up and you ask and answer the question about things worth knowing and things not worth knowing, CPR seems to be something worth knowing, right? But it seems to be most urgently needed to know when someone is not breathing. By the way, if your child is not breathing, does the person who knows CPR become the most important person in your world? Isn't it interesting that knowledge of things come in direct proportion to the urgency of what's going on in your life? Is it worth knowing whether or not there is a God? Is it worth knowing whether or not God judges us on the basis of our behavior? Is it worth knowing that people go to heaven on the basis of their relationship with Jesus Christ? And is it worth knowing that people go to hell? On the basis of them not knowing Jesus. It never becomes more important than right when you're on the precipice of entering into eternity. The writer says, wisdom will give you the power to live with the things that you don't understand. But wisdom will also give you the power to recognize and realize what's worth knowing and what's not worth knowing. Again, Blaise Pascal writes, we must learn our limits. We are all something, but none of us is everything. And by the way, if anyone had the right to at least pretend to be everything, would you say that the richest man in the world? with the most power in the world and the most wisdom in the world would seem to qualify. But even Solomon understands he doesn't know everything. Even Solomon understands that he is unable to ask and answer every question and all the nuances of God's working and God's ways. I'm back to what my pastor has said over and over again. Don't give up what you know for what you don't know. There are certain things worth knowing, and there are certain things not worth knowing. It's okay for you to want to know how things work and why things work. It's okay for you to question. It's okay for you to have inquiry. It's okay for you to ask questions that there doesn't seem to be any answer for. When I was a smart I still am, but when I was a smart aleck, I thought I would display my theological acuity by asking my Roman Catholic priest, Well, Father, if God is so big, can he make a rock that even he can't lift it? Well, son, you know, that's a mystery. Yeah, the world is full of mysteries. There's all kinds of mysteries in the world. The smart priest should have said, Son, you're a stupid idiot. You've asked the wrong question. The right question is, would God make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? You see, God isn't as stupid as you are. So we have to think things through. So in verse 24, Solomon says, as for that which is far off and exceedingly deep. Who can find it out verse 23? Solomon admits there are things that are far from me. Now he admits there are some things that are exceedingly deep and who can find it out. By the way. Stephen Hawking wasn't the first person to think about. A theory that would account for all things. Solomon. Clearly is one of the very first person to come up with The concept, both the philosophical and the scientific concept, of what is the nature of reality? Why are things the way that they are? How do we account for our presence on this planet? Solomon was one of the first people who wondered out loud whether or not there is a singular theory for everything. And he found out that there are certain things that he just simply couldn't answer. Real wisdom will allow you to allow God to speak. Real wisdom will allow you to ask and answer questions that lead and guide to more questions and answers. Let me just be very clear here. The Christian, the Christian, the person who loves the Lord, the person who loves the Bible, the person who loves this family, the Christian is never afraid of the truth. The truth never should be something that we fear. It should never intimidate us. It should never aggravate us. It should never bring us to a place where we go, wow, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if the Bible's not true and God's not real and Jesus isn't really the Lord. And he didn't really die on the cross. He didn't really rise from the dead. Are you obsessed to know the truth? I hope so. Solomon says, I wanted to know everything. And then I discovered something, that there are limits to things that even I could know. John Elway was being (laughs) interviewed on KOA today. One of the reporters said, you know, remember when you entered the league and you were a rookie and you thought you knew everything? And now you go right to the top of the Broncos organization. Doesn't it bother you a little bit that you have no experience whatsoever? John Elway said, I know What I don't know. Isn't that a great answer? I know what I don't know. And I know that when I don't know, the right answer is to find someone who does know the answers. You know what? That's wisdom. When you played in the league for 16 years... When you survived everything that he survived and, and he says, look, I'm willing to concede that I don't know everything. And I'm also willing to concede that what I don't know, I can surround myself with gifted people who can supplement my ignorance. That is wisdom. There is freedom and power in not being a slave to the unknown, but by believing That certain things can be known and inquiry can be made legitimately to those things that aren't known. In verse 25, he says, I applied my heart to know, to search and seek out wisdom, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Yeah, now you know where the writers of Star Trek ripped off those great lines. Solomon said, I applied my heart to know. The suggestion is he has a heart. And the suggestion is also that knowledge is possible. You know, by the way, we live in a world where there are two large camps. One camp says you can know something. Another camp says you can't know anything. The problem with the camp that believes you can't know anything is a self-refuting argument. You can't know anything. Examine the logical coherence of even that sentence. You can't know anything. How do you know that you can't know anything if, in fact, you can't know anything? And if you can't know anything, how can you know that nothing is, in fact, anything or that anything is nothing? I know what you're thinking. I'm going to chew on that a little bit to search and seek out wisdom and the reason of things to know the wickedness of folly. And here's part of the challenge, even as we look at the text, when a person embarks on a journey to know the wickedness of folly, it's a dangerous journey. For the person who says, I wonder how many beers I can drink before I actually die. I wonder how many hits of acid I can eat before I completely disappear into oblivion. For the person who wants to know the wickedness of folly. For the person who's willing to explore the depths of depravity and wickedness. They might find themselves on a journey that ends abruptly. Even of foolishness, he says, and madness. Do you know what he's saying? I'm wondering whether or not there's anything that can be known. I'm wondering whether or not I can benefit from foolishness and madness. Solomon searches for the scheme. That's what reason means here. The reason of things, the way things are, the schema. He finds no final answers to his questions. In 1980, Time Magazine noted a renaissance of inquiry. A long time ago, there was a paragraph that I found, quote, God, question mark, wasn't he chased out of heaven by Marx, banished to the unconscious by Freud, announced by Nietzsche to be deceased? Did not Darwin drive him out of the empirical world? Well, not entirely. In a quiet revolution in thought and arguments that hardly anyone could have foreseen only two decades ago, God is making a comeback. Most intriguingly, this is happening not among theologians or ordinary believers, but in the crisp intellectual circles of academic philosophers where, where, they, where the consistence has long banished the Almighty from fruitful discourse. Now it is more respectable among philosophers than it has been for a generation to talk about the possibility that God exists. It's interesting to me that in spite of a culture's commitment to philosophical naturalism, it's hard for a people to abandon something that is so deeply ingrained inside of each human heart. Remember what the Bible says? Only the fool has said in his heart, There is no God. I remember hearing the story in the former Soviet Union where a communist got up and he began to preach Marx and atheism and why it's foolish to believe in God. And it's stupid and ridiculous to believe in God. And he talked for hour after hour. And then one guy came up and said this simple phrase. He is risen. And everyone in the crowd said, he is risen indeed. Just because people want God to go away, just because people want to be foolish, just because people want to be wicked. It doesn't make the reality of God and Christ go away. So Solomon's point, there's power. Not just simply concerning what you know. But wisdom will also give you the strength and courage to not define your life simply on the basis of unanswered questions. You know what? Over 30 years ago, I received Christ as my Lord and my Savior. I had lots and lots of questions about what it meant to be a Christian. 30 years later, I've asked every question that I can imagine. And by the way, there still remains questions that I have that I have not found answers to, but I've learned something. That because I simply don't have the answer to every question, doesn't mean that I don't have the answer to any question. And I have the answer to the life's most important question. Is there grace for the sinner? Is there forgiveness for the human heart? Is it possible that you can know and love God? Is it possible that you can go to heaven? And the answer is yes. This is what the Bible means when it says, in the most famous verse in all of the Bible, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him wouldn't perish. This is what the Bible means when it says that Jesus Christ came into the world to seek and to save that which is lost. So there's power, even in the midst of mystery. There's power. Wisdom provides power even for danger. Look at verse 26. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hand are chains or fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. He, he's talked about what's better. He's talked about the bottom line. He talks about what's bitter. What else can wisdom do? Here's what he's saying. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets. Here's what he's saying. Wisdom, if you will allow it to, will help you avoid danger. Steer clear of traps and pitfalls. By the way. Solomon points out the pitfall of an illicit relationship. In the Living Bible, this is what this passage says. Quote, A prostitute is more bitter than death. May it please God that you escape from her, but sinners don't evade snares. Unquote. Here's the idea. Wisdom will keep you from falling into the trap. But there are people... That no matter what you teach them, and no matter what you say to them, they're still going to fall into the trap. Does the presence of truth always guarantee the presence of virtue? What do you think the answer is? The answer is no. There are many people who know the truth, but in spite of their knowledge of the truth, they still choose to do that which is wrong. Here's what he's saying. There's a woman whose heart consists of traps and nets, whose hands are chains. Here's what I suspect that he's saying. Solomon himself, it would appear, struggled with sexual seductions and addictions. Did he? Ray Stedman thinks so. Here's what he writes, quote, He went looking for love and thought he would find it in a relationship with a woman. He went looking for that which would support him and strengthen him and make him feel life was worth the living. But what he found was nothing but a fleeting sexual thrill. He found himself involved with a woman who did not give what he was looking for at all. He still felt the same Empty loneliness as before. One Bible teacher writes, Solomon made his choices. He suffered heartbreak. He paid the price. He lived to tell the tale. He wants that tale to serve as a warning. Think, he's saying. Don't get caught up in the reality or the thought or the ridiculous myth that grass is greener on the other side. All you need, all your joy is on your side of the fence. Here's what he's saying. Follow God's advice. And by the way, all of life boils down to that. Follow God's advice or ignore God's advice? What happens when you follow God's advice? It leads to forgiveness and hope and joy. What happens when you ignore God's advice? Sinners walk into a trap. Sinners refuse to believe the truth. Sinners believe that the affair is really love. By the way, is an adulterous relationship... Love or is it the illusion of love? You see, I'm going to tell you in Solomon's perspective, it's the illusion of love because it's a pitiful misrepresentation of what God meant it to be. And so in this illusion, the so-called lovers can only imitate what really constitutes intimacy. But the fact is that they can never, ever, ever have true commitment. Solomon spends a lot of time, by the way, talking about wisdom and immorality. In Proverbs chapter 2, Solomon talks about acquiring wisdom by listening to instruction, by asking for it, by searching for it like buried treasure, like precious metal. When wisdom enters your heart, it says in Proverbs 2.11, discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress. Proverbs 2.16, from she who flatters with her words, who forsakes the companion of her, of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God for her house leads to death, her paths to the dead, none who go return, nor do they regain the paths of life. To put it plainly, wisdom gives you the power to resist immorality. That's what he's saying. This becomes an important, important insight for each and every one of us. Because this is what the Bible says. Knowing what God has to say. Believing what God has to say. And then doing what God has to say. Will give you the power that you need to love Him and serve Him. By the way, what does sexual immorality and marital unfaithfulness do to a relationship? The Lord God himself in the book of Jeremiah uses sexual infidelity in graphic terms as a metaphor to describe the mental and emotional and spiritual damage and disconnect that happens. By the way, Solomon, his own mother, his own father, what were the circumstances in which they met? Adultery, infidelity, murder. By the way. Did Solomon seem to struggle with the ladies? I don't know how you can come to the number 700 wives and 300 concubines and just go, yeah, he's okay. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that Solomon himself was snared by foreign women. They drew him away from the Lord. They drew him towards the worship of pagan deities. So how do you escape the evil woman? Listen, Solomon's words are, fear God, seek God, please God. Verse 27, here is what I found, says the preacher, adding one thing to the other to find out the reason Which my soul still seeks, but I can't find one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. If I were truly wise. I would skip this passage altogether. I would just say, let's move on. But as a Bible teacher, I'm bound to at least try and help you think about the text. It would appear that Solomon believed the whole human race were slaves to sin. True or false? I think that's true. And so far, so good. Solomon then goes on to say that in his experience, only one man in a thousand is wise. That may be true or false. I mean, we have no reason to believe or disbelieve him but he says not one single woman what are we to think about what solomon is saying i think we remember again first kings chapter 11 verse 3 and he had 700 wives princesses 300 concubines and his wives turned away his heart how many women in his life 1000 Did any of those 1,000 women lead him in the right direction? I think we're not fair. And we're not fair to the text. And we're certainly not fair to Solomon. If we conclude that Solomon believed that women were less intelligent than men, that would be misreading the text and misreading both the intention of the text and, and the context. Because over and over again, Solomon speaks highly of women proverbs twelve four fourteen one eighteen twenty nineteen fourteen the whole book of proverbs chapter thirty one the whole chapter in the book of proverbs wisdom is described as a beautiful woman, not a beautiful man so what are we to think? I'm going to suggest to you that in Solomon's day, women were rarely accorded an an education. And even when Deborah ruled over the land, it was seen as a judgment on sin. But just because Solomon had really bad experiences with ladies doesn't mean that there is no such thing as a wise woman. As a matter of fact, we get exactly the opposite testimony in the New Testament. Where women over and over again respond in wisdom to the things of God. It was Eleanor Roosevelt who said, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. And so in verse 29, it says, truly this only I have found that God made man upright in other words, he's going back all the way to the beginning, Genesis one: one truly, this only I have found that God man made man upright. When God created human beings, he didn't create them wicked or evil or stupid or foolish. He created them wise and perfect and with the ability to enter into friendship and fellowship with him. But they have sought out many schemes. Things have changed. Adam changed. Eve changed. In Proverbs 2.6, this is what it says. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Who's the source of wisdom? God. Who does he impart wisdom to? To whomever he pleases. One of my favorite stories is George Washington Carver. I don't know if you knew this, but today... January 5th. Today, on this date in history, this was the day that George Washington Carver died. He was born in slavery. He became one of the greatest agricultural chemists the world has ever known. He single handedly saved the South when the boll weevil destroyed the cotton crop. He re- redirected his energies to the peanut. He literally found hundreds of uses for the peanut and the sweet potato. He was invited to testify before the Senate committee. And one of the senators said, Dr. Carver, how did you learn all these things? And George Washington Carver said, From a book. And the senator said, which book? And he said, the Bible. And the senator said, Dr. Carver, does the Bible have a lot to say about peanuts? And Dr. Carver said, no, Mr. Senator. But it does tell me about God. And God made the peanut." I asked him to show me what to do with the peanut. And he did. In Christ, it says in Colossians 2 3, in Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Because in Jesus are hidden the the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You may think that you've searched God's Word and it hasn't yielded the answers that you were looking for. But I'm here to remind you that the most important search that you could ever make is to discover the identity of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. In God's Word, you find Jesus. In God's Word, you find not just wisdom and knowledge, but the power to live a life Avoiding the pitfalls, avoiding the snares, avoiding the the temptations, you will be given the power to meet the challenge and face the test. Solomon has made his point. Wisdom makes life better. Wisdom makes life clearer. Wisdom makes life stronger. Do we always know what God is doing? No. But we've been given a portion, a ration. We've been given enough information to know that God is in the business of doing what's right instead of what's wrong. What's good instead of what's bad. What's redemptive instead of what's condemning. You know, the Bible says that there are certain things that can never be joined. Light and darkness. Heaven and and hell wisdom and foolishness holiness and sin that's why Jesus comes that's why he dies so that you can be taken out of darkness and into light so you can be taken out of foolishness and into righteousness so you can be redeemed Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for instruction. Lord, we know that you've placed Solomon's words in this book so that we could hear and get a better understanding of what knowledge and wisdom is and why it's important to each and every one of us. Lord, we thank you for the whole counsel of God. That we aren't simply limited by what Solomon says, but we have the magnificent, wonderful privilege of being able to know what you've said from Genesis to Revelation. And Heavenly Father, you've given us instruction. That we can turn from darkness into light. That we can turn from death into life. That we can abandon our unbelief and our wickedness and we can find hope and redemption and forgiveness in Jesus. And I pray for that person who may have found himself or herself here and they've never really known you. Lord, I pray that they would ask the most important question that could ever be asked. How can I experience hope and forgiveness for my life? How can I be redeemed? And Lord, we know the answer. Here is love in that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. That his sacrifice gives us life and hope. That if we will turn from our sin and our unbelief, if we will receive Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, the Bible says, to them he gave the promise to become the children of God. And so again, Lord, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would remind us of the fresh challenges and the new temptations and that, Lord, how you want to be a provision in every challenge and for every test. In Jesus' name, amen.